What's happening, people? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Luke Burgess. He's an entrepreneur and an author, and we are talking about why we want what we want. We feel like we're in charge of our wants, right? Like we're the creator of our desires. But Rene Girard's theory of mimetic desire suggests an alternative. All we're doing is copying and modeling other people's wants and then spitting them back out as our own. Today, expect to learn why you're going to die of a Brazilian butt lift over and over again. Why mimesis is a kind of alchemy, how mimetic desires cause people to become scapegoats, why Lamborghini's creation story is explained by Rene Girard, and much more. This is another red pill to take. Sadly, mimetic desire seems to have all the hallmarks of something I don't want to be true, and yet almost definitely probably is. So, yes, enjoy emerging from this conversation, uh, even less under the comfortable blanket of ignorance than you were right now. In other news, uh, but before I get to other news, I'm going away this week. I'm going away to Ibiza. So this Saturday, there is no episode. I'm sorry, but even I need a holiday. And after 15 months of unrelenting three episodes a week, uh, you're just getting two. So Monday, Thursday, next week, uh, but no Saturday episodes for the next couple. As I was saying, in other news, this episode is brought to you by Element. It's a tasty electrolyte drink with everything that you need and nothing you don't. It's a healthy alternative to sugary electrolyte drinks. Each grab-and-go stick replaces essential electrolytes with no sugar, no colouring, no artificial ingredients, or any other junk. It's how I've started every morning for the last year, couple of years probably now. It's your adenosine system, which is what caffeine acts on, isn't working within the first 90 minutes of the day. Your adrenal system is, and salt acts on your adrenal system. So try replacing your first coffee of the day with salt in cold water. This tastes phenomenal. I absolutely adore all of their flavors. There's citrus and raspberry and my favorite, which is chili and mango. And it's just an awesome way to start the day. It also means that you are more hydrated. They're the exclusive hydration partner to Team USA Weightlifting, the NFL, NBA, NHL, Special Forces, Navy SEAL teams, FBI sniper teams, and Marines, plus tech leaders and everyday athletes around the world. On top of that, you can get a free sample pack with every single flavor in it and all that you need to do is cover the cost of shipping and pay nothing for the actual pack head to drink lmnt.com slash modern wisdom that's drink lmnt.com slash modern wisdom it's five dollars shipping in the us or three pounds 84 to the uk and you pay absolutely nothing for the actual product drink lmnt.com slash modern wisdom in other, other news, this episode is brought to you by Surfshark VPN. You need a VPN in your life. People on the internet are trying to steal your data all the time. And if you use a VPN, they can't see what you're doing. Also, it means that you can access the entire world's Netflix library. You are already paying for a Netflix subscription. So for an extra £1.50 per month you can access the entire world's Netflix library at the touch of a button. You can access it on every device, including your iPad, your laptop, your phone, even on your TV, because Surfshark VPN works on that as well. There's no reason not to have it. If you have a Netflix account and you like to watch stuff on there, you can access America or China, or I don't know whether China has it, probably, or Japan or Germany or anywhere else in the world. You can access all of their Netflix shows from one account 
Plus, it secures your data. It stops hackers and websites from tracking you and trying to steal your data. And it takes two seconds to set up. It's so easy. Press a couple of buttons and you are done. Head to surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom and you can get 83% off, three months free, and a 30-day money-back guarantee. That's surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom, 83% off, three months free, and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Go and secure your browsing and get access to the entire world's Netflix library today. But now, it's time to learn about why our desires aren't our own. With Luke Burgess. Luke Burgess, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for having me on. I've got a quote that I need you to explain to me, okay? Okay. We want what other people want because other people want it. And it's penciled in eyebrows all the way down, down to the depths of the nth circle of hell, where we all die immediately of a Brazilian butt lift over and over again. What's that about? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is a quote from Dana Tortorici, who's the editor of N Plus One magazine uh, here in the States. Uh, she's talking about mimetic desire. She wrote a beautiful piece about Instagram and the effect that Instagram is having on what we want. And her finding was the, basically the topic of my book, that the nature of desire is mimetic, meaning we're, we always look to other people. We look to models who help us understand what to want and that the social media platforms like Instagram are essentially just these machines of generating desires, mimetic desires. Everybody's imitating the desires of everybody else. And, you know, the joke is it's like turtles all the way down. It's like mimetic desire all the way down. Like where, where does this end? It makes us miserable and depressed because we don't realize that that's part of what social media is doing to us. It's just providing billions of desires out there. And we can't tell, you know, the signal through the noise. Why do we have mimetic desire then? Is it adaptive? Mimetic desire is, according to René Girard, who sort of discovered this phenomenon in the late 50s and early 60s, is just a part of human nature. It's part of what it means to be human. Uh, Perhaps uh, if we got back to the evolutionary process, perhaps it's something that humans developed in order to sort of separate ourselves, you know, from from the great apes. So this may have actually been adapted uh, from an evolutionary perspective um, to help us create culture, uh, to learn language. I mean, imitation plays a fundamental role in all kinds of very positive human things, social interactions. Uh, if, if we're not imitating each other the right way, it can get a little awkward. Uh, so, you know, this Gerard said that imitation actually helps prevent violence and helps cultures to form. So it's part of the human condition, uh, something that we can't escape. Uh, but very few people are kind of aware that there is such a thing as mimetic desire. I mean, we we have this modern, hyper-individualistic, hyper-rationalistic understanding or view of ourselves and why we want the things that we want, where, you know, I lay eyes on something and I want it because of X, Y, and Z, and I describe all of these objective qualities without taking into account that I'm a social creature and I'm constantly looking to other people that shape the perception of value for for things, for people, for groups. Um, this affects everything from politics to you know to the stock market. Do we have any wants that aren't mimetic? Do you think? 
Or are there humans out there who don't have any wants that aren't mimetic? That's a great question and a topic of um, of great debate uh, among people that that read Girard. Some would say no. Uh, I think there's some nuance, right? There's some there's some distinctions that we could make. For instance, instinctual things that we have a biological drive for: uh, food and water, um, sexual pleasure. These kinds of things are they're kind of like built into us. We could call those desires. But I like to sort of think of those more on the needs spectrum. Uh, but there are also seem to be some basic fundamental human desires, like classical philosophy has, has identified these, like the desire for knowledge, uh, the desire for survival. Um, these are just basic things that every that seem common to all to all humans, um, unless something kind of you know go, goes wrong. Um, but in terms of the more abstract desires. As we get into things that are sort of less grounded in any kind of instinctual basis and we start talking about careers and lifestyles and fashions, there's nobody that desires those things without having some kind of a model. I mean, they don't generate those desires ex nihilo, like out of thin air, because they're they're already embedded. We're born embedded into this social process. Uh, and, you know, we, we don't we haven't created these things ourselves. So even even today, I mean, the irony is that things that used to be probably not so much in the realm of desire, like drinking water, for instance, uh, you know, there was just water. <laughs> now, now there's like 20 different brands of bottled water with all kinds of different minerality breakdowns and, and, and marketing aspects. Uh, most people like haven't actually analyzed those things. So they they look to other people and they they shape their the valuation of those things through mimesis. So most people think that they're the conscious agents of their own wants and desires. And then if determinism hasn't put them in the ground, mimetic desire can come and hammer the nail into the coffin and throw a bunch of concrete on top of it. Is that kind of how how it's looking at the moment? Exactly. I, I think that's probably a, a, a good way to put it. Yeah, usually the less the, the less mimetic we think we are, the, the more we probably are. Fantastic. There's, obviously, there's an implication for Maslow's hierarchy of needs there that you kind of have this bottom level of needs, but then above needs is desires. And then you say that a lot of these desires are kind of interchangeable. So the hierarchy becomes very messy as soon as you get past the needs. In, yeah. In fact, I mean, as soon as you get past the very bottom level of the hierarchy, I would say that there's no hierarchy at all uh, in the in the universe of desire, if you will. There is no hierarchy. So, you know, Maslow's pyramid, if you can picture it, sort of uh, goes up and our needs become a little more focused and, and smaller the, the higher we get towards the top. And I think we could probably lop off Maslow's hierarchy right above the first couple of levels, right? The physiological needs, the needs for security, like having a roof over our head. As we move beyond that, I think we just cut the pyramid right off and we enter this very messy world of desires that doesn't have a, a strict hierarchy because there's there's often not a lot of objectivity to it. Um, we, we look around at this universe of people around us and the reason there's no hierarchy is that we adopt desires or we derive desires based on people that we come into contact with um, more than any kind of like... Uh, like teleology um, that's guiding us towards this very one specific thing. And I'm not arguing that that doesn't exist. 
um, if you're religious, you you could you, I think you have a strong case to make that there is uh, there is some ultimate desire. You know, Dante talks about that at the end of the Inferno. But for most of us, um, as as mimetic creatures, we spend most of our lives kind of bouncing like like pinballs in a pinball machine. You know, from from different models and from different desires to the next. Uh, and that's one of the reasons it's important to be able to see our mimetic nature and to be able to sort of put some. To, to lay over some structure because, you know, if some, some objective value to step back from the mimetic game and to be able to understand, like, what what is it that is there are certain things that I should want um, that are sort of objective goods that may be lost in kind of the mimetic craziness and noise of the modern world? Someone said that mimetic desire is to psychology what gravity is to physics. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So if that's the case, how was it discovered? So um, it was discovered by a, a French academic named René Girard, who came to the state shortly after World War II. And his degree was in history. And he discovered, discovered mimetic desire um, outside of his field of expertise through reading classic literature, because he believed that literature, um, even mythological literature, classic fiction held deep anthropological truths inside of it. So the analogy here would be to um, Heinrich Schleiermann, who was a gentleman in 1871 who set out to find the lost city of Troy with a shovel under his arm and a copy of the Iliad under the other arm. He had a shovel and he had the Iliad in 1871. And all the archaeologists, everybody laughed this guy kind of just like out of the room. But two years later, he found Troy because he believed that the text actually held clues. Like there was there was some truth. He took the text seriously and he scrutinized the text and it allowed him to discover the city when nobody else took it seriously. So in other words, his method was wrong, according to the experts. But the guy used the Iliad and he found Troy. So yeah, who's the idiot? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, all he did was read a book. <laughs> all he did was read a book that everybody else had read, but they just dismissed it as as not important to this quest to, to, to find the city. Gerard is like that in that he read classic literature and mythology, and he, he believed that the text held very important secrets about human nature. And he wasn't a literary critic. He didn't even study literature. He was self-taught. But he scrutinized the text that way. And I think it probably helped that he had fresh eyes. You know, like sometimes we see things easier when we're outside of the domain um, where people are like in the weeds and we, we kind of stand back and have fresh perspective and we can see things that other people miss. And that's what he did with the literature. And his discovery was that desire is mimetic in a lot of the great classic novels, um, at least of the Western canon, like Dostoevsky, Cervantes, a lot of great French literature, um, like Proust. And he noticed that all of the characters in these novels, none of them want spontaneously, like their desires don't arise out of the blue. There's always some model for them, somebody influencing what they want. And Girard was one of these great interdisciplinary minds. Um, there's not a lot of them left. Like he, he studied anthropology, history, literature. So he he saw this discovery in literature the way that Schleiermann did in the Iliad, uh, this truth. And then he began to look for it in other places uh, and he found it everywhere. And it's now, you know, 60 years later after Girard started talking about mimesis and mimetic desire, we have neuroscientists 
finding mirror neurons and realizing that, you know, in fact, imitation is like hardwired into, into what it means to be human. And if we imitate things like language and facial expressions and fashion, why wouldn't we also imitate desires? That's exactly what I thought as soon as I learned about Rene Girard's work. Like, why would we believe that our children copy the faces that we pull at them when they're a toddler held in our lap? But that at some point, what you get agency, someone gives you the agency card at age 16 or something, and you're like, right, okay, imprinting is over, mimetic desire doesn't begin. No, of course, the imprinting that you have, the, uh, and it makes sense in an adaptive characteristic as well, right? You, you watch someone do a thing that looks successful. As a hunter-gatherer, that expedites your progress and your learning because you don't even need to be told it. You can just watch them do it. And then maybe you can be told it as well that adds some flavor to it too. Like it's just turbocharging learning. So why wouldn't that happen? But as you start to roll into higher levels of abstraction and you have these sort of loftier goals, and especially when you are exposed to far more stimulus stimuli than you would have done usually, like it can be hijacked in a, a pretty sort of crazy way. Yeah. And, you know, the smarter that people are, the easier they can convince themselves of anything, uh, including that, you know, mimetic desire is not a part of them. You know, so the funny, interesting thing is that in children, we see mimetic desire easily. You put a bunch of toddlers loose in a room and one of them picks up a single toy that none of the other other kids were concerned about all of a sudden a second and a third one comes over and you know the 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 more of them start oogling the single toy the more attractive it becomes like this power of attraction it's kind of like when you're walking down the sidewalk and you see a bunch of people like huddled around a corner like watching some break dancers or something like that it's just yeah it's like moth to a flame you know and that's mimetic desire you know we're taking our cues from other people so in children it happens and it's kind of funny um, like one one kid wants a single toy and the other one immediately just starts crying if he can't have it too. Um, and we you know we know from childhood development that this happens. There's been a, many studies that I reference in the book. But the funny thing, and children are open about their imitation and open about who their models are. You know, we call them role models, and they're not really embarrassed of their imitation. They imitate their older siblings and they're proud to do so. You know, in fact, the, the, the better they can imitate the older brother or something like that, just, you know, the, the better it may want to go tell everybody, you know, how much, how well they're doing at being like, like the older brother, or whoever, as we get older though, it seems that the, the mimetic part of ourselves, we kind of like bury it, you know, it's, it's sort of like, it's not good to be known as an imitator, as an adult, especially with you know, the way that entrepreneurship has sort of gone in the last 20 years, like we really prize innovation and imitation has become a dirty word. So it seems like the the mimetic part of what it means to be human has just went underground. It doesn't mean that it's disappeared. Uh, we haven't like engineered it away. If anything, we're probably more mimetic than ever because of social media. But as adults, it's not something that we talk about very often. Well, we call it out, right? People break the fourth wall with regards to the role models that they follow. Think about the Conor McGregor walk. You know, that walk as he goes into the ring or the type of shirts that he was wearing. He wore that outrageous Versace shirt to the races one day. And then next summer, every fast fashion brand for men has these sort of floral, like what would have been typically classed as like shit shirts, but now are the coolest thing on the market because Conor McGregor wore it. But everyone's fine with that. People seem to be like, yeah, yeah, but that's conscious. I know I'm doing that. I'm doing the walk. It's kind of um, self-mocking almost, and I'm breaking the fourth wall about it. I know I'm doing that. 
And for some reason, we presume that we're the conscious agents of our own desires. It's not Brazilian butt lifts all the way down. It's like Brazilian butt lifts when I choose to get it, but not when I don't. Yeah, exactly. Breaking the fourth wall is a great term to describe this because, you know, things do happen where we break the fourth wall. The fourth wall is strongest uh, with the people that are close, closest to us. And that fourth wall doesn't get broken a whole lot. So it's, it's one thing to imitate Conor McGregor. For, for me to imitate Conor McGregor and, and his crazy shirts and the way that he walks and stuff like that, um, because he's Conor McGregor. Uh, it's another thing for me to have that relationship of imitation with somebody that is like my colleague or somebody in my workplace, somebody very close to me or my own business partner. And Gerard says there are two different kinds of, of models of desire for the most part. There are those that are external mediators of desire because they're outside of our world and they don't really imitate back. Um, there's no kind of uh, there's no there's no threat of of this kind of reflexive, uh, weird relational situation that can turn into rivalry and create conflict. And then there are what he calls internal mediators of desire, and those are people inside of our world. We're not just talking about physical distance here. We're talking about our social world, like existentially speaking. These are the people that if we're imitating them, they might notice that we're imitating them. Conor McGregor has no fucking idea that I, you know, I, I wear his shirts, right? So these are these are trickier. And I think uh, we break the fourth wall on the external ones and we can joke about it, but rarely does that happen with, with the internal mediators of desire. No, the only reason that you would ever do that would be if you were taking the piss, right? You'd, exactly. You've got some, the new Australian in the office or the Brit in the office and all of the Americans decide that they're going to try and do the British or Australian accent, which all of you are terrible at. <laughs> and and um yeah that's that's the way it works so is mimesis a kind of alchemy because it seems like you can create a desire or a demand for something which was originally worth nothing by just having other people appear to want it yeah I, you know rory sutherland who, who i've spoken to he wrote a great book uh i Old think alchemy, would, would yeah. certainly say that it's it's alchemy uh and I, I tell a story about Eddie Bernays, who basically used alchemy to manufacture uh, an outcome in, in the earliest 20th century in the, in the States. Uh, women didn't smoke in public. It was totally taboo. But all the men were addicted to, to cigarettes because they were included in the ration packs in, in the First World War. So all the men smoked. None of the women smoked in public. Very rarely did they. And Bernays was hired by one of the large uh, tobacco companies, American Tobacco, that made Lucky Strikes. And Lucky Strikes realized that if they could tap into the the, the market for, for female smokers, especially in public, then they'd make, you know, the modern day equivalent of billions of dollars back then. And Bernays, who was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, by the way, so he, he understood psychology. And even though he wouldn't have used the term mimetic desire, uh, he certainly understood the, the principle of mimesis and that humans need models of desire. And what did he do? He engineered this elaborate stunt at the 1929 uh, Easter Day Parade. He had women, attractive women, come out of the churches with packs of lucky strikes planted inside their, their fancy overcoats. And on cue, they whipped out the lucky strikes and started smoking them, just defiantly walking down Fifth Avenue in New York City. And these women served as models. They were all of the newspapers were were photographing them and bernays said look at these women smoking torches of freedom they're 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 defying this taboo they're finally free because they're able to smoke 
and it's it appeared that they were they spontaneously chose to do this but in fact the whole thing was engineered by bernays because he realized that uh, this this model of a bunch of women at the same time spontaneously deciding that they were going to defy this this taboo was incredibly powerful for all of the other women that saw this i mean it's, this is like mimetic desire 101 and then there's the element of rivalry in there um you know with 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 the men and and he used this to create some kind of alchemy to generate a certain outcome. So we do have to be careful. Um, you know, marketers know this very well. Um, and, you know, even people that are sort of like really, really slick in the dating game uh, know, know this very, very well, too. Right. Um, there's sort of no no better no better way to to generate desire for oneself than to be able to walk into a bar and have your you know a, attractive friend of the opposite sex just pretend to be totally fascinated with you or something like that right there, there always needs to be a model it seems like signaling and mimetic desire are very closely interlinked is there a relationship between this i think that i think it's a deep relationship and, and it's very simple it's just that models of desire signal to us what is what is wantable so it acts as a as a source of legitimacy for our own desires think about it if if i want something um that nobody else wants or you know if i want to uh, go on vacation to a certain spot or 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 you know pursue some path in life um most people if they if they express this desire and they can't find anybody else around them who also seems to think that that thing's desirable they begin to doubt themselves and, and wonder if they're if they want the right thing um, this happens in romance it happens in careers now i don't think i, I mean there are certainly some people and i think entrepreneurs are the are the prime example like everybody could tell them they're crazy and that they shouldn't do something but they do it anyway that's a little bit different though that's that's not that's not necessarily a a, a desire that's just people weighing in like well i don't think this will work for x y and z reason when it comes to like actual desires we look for other people the models to signal le the legitimacy of that desire for us so i think there's a very deep connection there has to be equivalence of like a first mover right as you said with the kids you got the kids in the play play area and let's say that they're all doing nothing, then one does something. Now, that something can have been iterated on a mimetic desire that they saw yesterday or that they saw two weeks ago or that they watched mum do in the car on the way here or something. But there does have to be a first mover. So there has to be um, gradations of how mimetic certain desires are that we have. There are certain people who step further outside of the Overton window of what is normal acceptable behavior with regards to their desires. And there are others that are slap bang in the middle of the normal distribution. Yes, I think thinking of it uh, as a gradation or as a spectrum of mimesis is exactly the right way to think about it. So let's take the little girl in the room who picks up a bright red fire truck. She may pick up that fire truck because her dad is a firefighter. <laughs> and and you know that and that's the reason why she was the first mover. So it's nothing to do with the other kids in the room. It has to do with some external factor, or something you know she saw on TV the day before. But uh, it could have nothing to do with that. Um, it could just be uh, because the color red is just this like bright red color, and all of the other toys are dull have dull colors. And there's some kind of instinctual response where the red was attractive. I mean we we know this in animals with birds and flowers. So so perhaps. There, there is an instinctual basis for people moving towards things and, and desiring it. 
And then the mimesis uh, maybe follows that. So I think there's all kinds of reasons why somebody could be a first mover, um, different gradations. And the trick is kind of like getting to the source, right? Getting to the bottom of it. So if everyone's converging on desires, this must cause conflict because more people are more alike which means that increased rivalry and a greater desire for differentiation as well has to come out of it. Yes, the, the next step. So the mimetic desire is like step one of Girard's theory. Step two is that mimetic desire quite naturally has to lead to conflict because we're imitating the desire of a model where we're now pursuing what the model is pursuing. So we've, we've de facto made ourselves in, into some form of a rival. So the model is now an obstacle to us in, in the pursuit of whatever the thing is. So you think of a, like a hypermimetic environment like um, university. The students come into the university maybe with all kinds of like grandiose ideas of what they want to do when they graduate. If you pull them on their first day, Let's say it's a, you know it's a class of a thousand students. You might get eight or nine hundred different answers of of different things that they want to do post graduation. But the funny thing is, by the time that they graduate, if you ask them on the last day, you might get a hundred. Like in 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 some sense, like the, the, their their desires of what they want to do just kind of converge through this mimetic process. Like one of them is like, oh, this is the this is the company to work for. This is the industry to work in. And their desires converge. And then it becomes hyper competitive. And they're competing over the same types of jobs, competing to get into the same companies. And it creates, uh, creates conflict. Um, that's a relatively superficial example. But it, this can manifest itself in all different kinds of ways. And we, so basically the, the counterintuitive idea here for Girard, is that our conflict does not arise primarily from our differences. Um, it actually arises from our from our sameness. It, it arises from mimesis, from imitating each other, which draws us closer together and sort of um, brings us into a situation of of imitating one another, but kind of wanting to hide it. Um, this weird sort of situation of of of, dip, of needing to differentiate ourselves while we're all secretly imitating ourselves. And the, the best example of this for me is social media. Uh, social media it has a homogenizing nature to it. If you think about the way that twi Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook, we all have the same profiles. We all It's all kind of structured the same way. We have the same wiring and we have to present ourselves in, in that way. We have the same number of characters to make a point. So it actually has brought us closer together. Nobody really knows who, to, who the models are to follow. I mean, they change all the time. And there's this, um, you, you see, there's like this great anxiety to sort of differentiate oneself while in an environment where everybody's imitating everybody else in some way and responding to everybody else. So that's, this is the great paradox, I think, of, of mimetic desire. Yeah, it's interesting, especially on social media, because you have people that get to the top, right? So they have a power law um, advantage because more people, proportionally far more people, see their content. And then they look at it and they think, oh, well, he's, Luke's got good reach with that tweet. So I'll add that into the library of potential mimesis strategies. And then, oh, Luke's done it again. He's done it again with that same sort of tweet. And you see this, right? You see this with different structures, whether it's putting clap, clap emojis in between each word or whether it's using a particular hashtag. Like, what is a hashtag? It's other people saying, this is a trend. This is something else that I agree with. And a lot of what people are trying to do there is achieve success 
through the adoption of that trend. Here's something that's worked well. That's a signal of high value, high status, intellect, humor, whatever. Uh, therefore, I'm going to adopt it. I'm going to absorb it into myself. Yeah, you see it all, all the time on, on social media. Like when one person develops a certain tactic, all of a sudden you start seeing it everywhere. It's imitated everywhere. Um, you know, and, and maybe the origin of that was some, you know, program of how to get more engagement in 30 days or something like that, right? So people start doing all kinds of funny things like asking these questions. And, um, you know, I can, I can, you can almost just sniff it out, right, as soon as you see it. But imitating there's a lot of cargo cult stuff happening um not only on social media but in uh you know in the startup world for instance and it's like imitating sort of the the external things like will magically bring about some some kind of result so you see entrepreneurs like imitating all kinds of like surface level things like ways of dressing ways of working kind of lifestyles like different the ways even that we communicate in our email exchanges like there was this like hyper mimetic trend while, while i was living in california where like all of a sudden it seemed like overnight like nobody wanted to use capital letters in emails anymore and it was like it's not cool it means that you're like you're not busy enough if you have to capitalize the first word of your sentences and use punctuation and it's like in the course of a year man i'm not kidding like that like that just happened so there's like this imitation of like all these like funny external things that have very, very little to bear on on the success of the company uh, or on the valuation, right? And on, on the value creation. So, you know, what we're imitating is is very important. Is it is it like the superficial external things? Like are we doing that with some like auto magical expectation that if I put these three emojis after all of my tweets, suddenly, you know, I will you know, have the following that uh, Elon Musk has? No, it doesn't it, work like that. If I wear the black <laughs> turtleneck, then I get all of the insights from creativity and marketing that Steve Jobs had. This is what we saw with Elizabeth Holmes, right, from Theranos, a woman who was a complete shyster and a total total con artist, very successfully so. Um, and she wore a turtleneck the same way that Steve Jobs did. There's actually clips on YouTube, if you look hard enough, of her real voice changing was, her voice yeah, yeah so she lowered her voice to imitate the men that were in the industry because she thought that having a lower voice would signal that she was more masculine more disagreeable more conscientious more industrious harder working um but the product that they created the what was it called the winston or something what was the thing that they made oh, i forget the name of the actual anyway, product the, yeah the uh some famous uh, scientists from the 1900s they named the named this thing uh, the edison that was it um right. and uh but that was shit total shit didn't do what it was supposed to do at all but she'd got all the surface area stuff she'd got all of the easy to achieve things here's another thing man that i think about a lot scott alexander put this on his blog a little while ago talking about how um fashions work two rungs apart in terms of class or group hierarchy so if you're upper class kim kardashian let's say you can wear heels with a pair of popper-sided jogger tracksuit bottoms to an awards ceremony, and people are going to think, oh, yeah, that's so cool. It's like the clothes of the underclass. It's the clothes of sort of the street chav, but worn by someone who's really, really classy. But if you're only one rung above them, if you're perhaps lower middle class, you can't get away with that because you're so close that you could be confused. The signal that you're giving off and the mimesis isn't a signal of I'm so cool that I can wear something that's two rungs below me or 
I am so rich, uh, even though I might be in a sort of lower middle class or an underclass position, that I can wear what the people above me are. I just look this way and I'm above my station, basically. Um, so you need to have these gaps. So the way that people model stuff and who they choose is also a signal in itself, right? Okay, what is this going to adopt within me? What am I trying to say with this? Is there any confusion that this might actually be me slipping down a peg as opposed to moving up a peg? It's brilliant. And, and that has everything to do with what we talked about earlier, that Kim Kardashian can do that because she lives in a different world. So it's not confusing. She's going f- far enough away into um, it's an external world for her, right? We, external mediators of desire and internal mediators. So she's going far enough away. So it's not confusing where if she sort of stayed in the world of celebrity and did something, um, it could create a lot of conflict. So that that has to do with the distinction of like what world do the models occupy? Um, and we see that in, in, in all kinds of different domains. The interesting thing with Elizabeth Holmes, though, I have to add, is that what she did, like we can say that it's silly, we can joke about the black turtlenecks, but to some extent it worked in in the sense that she created an aura around her. Alchemy, man. That Alchemy. It was total alchemy that, that got people, presumably very smart people. I mean, it's embarrassing if you watch the, the documentary, the amount of people, right, that are on there touting her. Um, so in a sense, mimetic desire models like literally distort reality. You know, we, we project all kinds of things onto models, um, like metaphysical things that they don't even possess. Um, so there's a kind of a game that's being played. It's like who can make themselves out to be the right kind of a model. Um, and if you can do that, you can raise, you know, I, I forget some ridiculous amount of money that, that Elizabeth Holmes was able to raise. And then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like the more money you're able to raise, the more people that you get, like, you know, ha- former heads of state, the more people don't even question. They just they, they now have models of desire to follow. And it makes the seventh and eighth and the ninth one extremely easy. What goes on when mimesis happens to social groups then? Usually when mimesis makes its way through a social group, through kind of mimetic contagion, um, it leads to the group becoming more homogenous if there's no kind of external reference in, in the social group. Uh, Girard found that, you know, and this can happen at the micro level, it can happen in a family, it can happen in a company, it can even happen in a community or in a country, um, where everybody is reacting mimetically to, to everybody else. And it kind of creates this, what he calls, excuse me, a mimetic crisis. And Girard found that uh, at the root of, of a lot of societal crises is like out of control mimetic desire, where there's no sort of clear models to follow. There's no shared models and everybody's kind of looking to everybody else and reacting to everybody. It's interesting. We don't, you know, in, in at least I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, 2021 America, there's not a lot of shared models, right? I mean, what part of the problem is there's not a lot of like, like models that we can agree on in terms of like who we should be following. So it just, it cre- in, the, in the absence of that, there's this kind of mimetic crisis where different sort of groups and factions form and everybody is reacting to everybody else. And Girard found that historically, these kinds of mimetic crises are solved through uh, what he calls the scapegoat mechanism, through um, turning away from one another, through the imitation of one another, and sort of taking out the tension, taking out the aggression 
on on some on some scapegoat that basically provides some temporary relief from from the from the internal mediation that that created the crisis. Can you dig into that a little bit more? Sort of why does that happen? How is it a release valve? It it happens because the when people are imitating one another in conflict and in aggression, um, the they they think of it this way. Think of a bunch of people sort of um, standing, lo- looking at one another, sort of um, fighting, taking their cues from the other side, tit for tat aggression, and somebody or someone comes on the scene, uh, a third party that allows them to now stand shoulder to shoulder, and which in a sense like releases them or makes them forget about their their aggression towards one another and they are able to to essentially unite against whoever the scapegoat is so it actually it causes group cohesion um when there's a scapegoat um so i mean this goes all the way back to ancient israel where there was a sacred rite for this right every year at yom kippur the high priest would symbolically transfer all of the sins of the people onto a goat and then they would collectively drive that goat out into the wilderness into to, into the hands of a demon to die and the the act of transferring all of the all of the blame the transfer of blame onto that scapegoat and then very importantly the act of collectively um, driving that goat away exiling that goat created cohesion among the people whereas before it was kind of a, a, as Hobbes would say like a war of all against all uh, tons of interpersonal conflicts the scapegoat is like concentrating all conflict and all blame onto a single kind of fixed point it'd be like you know if we have cancer running all throughout our body imagine how nice it would be if we could concentrate uh, all of the cancer into one cell and eliminate the cell well the scapegoat mechanism is essentially doing that but for a social process, not a biological process. So I imagine in an individualistic society, this is even worse, right? Because you're so siloed out. Everybody is their meritocratic, utilitarian, objective metric of success that they can add to society. And this must make the scapegoat mechanism even more. So you've got the collapse of grand narratives, all the things that used to cohese us together in the past attending church, going to the same sports games together. The paradox of choice is that when you can follow whatever interests you have, you're less likely to cohese with the people around you about their interests as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think when I look at um, like the United States today, the one thing that seems to bind groups together more than anything else, like the most identifiable and easiest thing to identify the group is who their enemy is. In other words, like who their scapegoat is. So Gerard had a, a funny saying one time. He was like, you know, political partisanship is essentially, um, you know, having the same scapegoat as, as, as everybody else or, or something to that effect. But aside from politics, it's just it, the scapegoat mechanism creates group cohesion through this, uh, this kind of transference of blame. It binds people together through that. So I think that it, I think you're right. I think that as our society becomes more uh, hyper-individualistic and fractured, we will see more and more need for the scapegoat mechanism because we have less of the shared values. Like one way to think of shared values would be like shared models, right? That's why I said it's hard to find like, uh, like models that everybody agrees on. 
I, I once tweeted out, I was like, who's a who's like a model that like all Americans can like like hold up as a, as a good example? And I only got one response, and it was Dolly Parton. The Rock. Um, the Rock. Everybody <laughs> the loves rock. The Rock. That's who I'd have voted for. I think I think The Rock is probably up there. Yeah. Yeah. But but they're hard to find. I mean, the fact that we're talking about The Rock and Dolly <laughs> show, show, shows you, and not and not some like ideals or virtues or like a sense of like what it should mean to be like that just says everything that you need to know about the state that we're in. <laughs> There's a study that my buddy Rob Henderson told me about in 2008 which is when Obama got elected the first time, um, right. both parties loved their own party or liked their own party more than they disliked the other party. 2012, when they were polled, people disliked the other party more than they liked the one that they were voting for. So it, it literally is like a protest vote. It's a vote against what I don't want to happen as opposed to what I want to happen, which is crazy when you think about it like that. Does, um, you had a story of how Lamborghini came to fame in the book. You tell us that. Yeah, this is a beautiful story of a mimetic desire that turned into mimetic rivalry that ended well, uh, which is rare. And, and it's why I thought it was important to tell the story, because mimetic desire can lead to great innovation and it can be a tremendously positive, motivating force for people as long as you don't let it metastasize and become uh, negative and destructive and self-destructive. So the story of um, Ferrari and Lamborghini is fascinating. So Enzo Ferrari, of course, built the, the Ferrari automobile company known for these great racing cars. And Ferruccio Lamborghini, who's the, the founder of what we today know as the, as the Lamborghini automobile company, started out making tractors in the middle of the 20th century. He made these beautiful tractors and he did very well for himself as a businessman and to the point where he could buy himself a few Ferraris. So you have this successful entrepreneur, Ferruccio Lamborghini, driving these Ferraris. And in, in one of his top-of-the-line Ferraris, the clutch just kept on breaking on him. And he couldn't figure out what was going on. He would take it to the Ferrari shop. They would charge him an arm and a leg, send him back, and the thing would break three months later. Just infuriated. He finally had his tractor engineers open up the hood, uh, take a look at the clutch, and he found out it was the same damn clutch that he used in some of his cheaper tractors. Now, this really pissed him off because when he went to Ferrari, of course, you know they charged him 10 times more than the cost of the part. So Lamborghini said, screw this. I'm just going to take a really top-of-the-line clutch and, and put it in my car. So he rigged his car. He made himself a better Ferrari by putting one of his really sturdy clutches in. And his, his argument was like, they're not using a clutch that can handle the power of this vehicle. So he did it, uh, and then he souped up the engine while he was at it. And then he, he would go out on the Autostrada near where the Ferrari factory is, where the Ferrari engineers would test their cars. And Lamborghini had souped up his Ferrari to where it would beat the new Ferraris coming out of the garage. And they're like, what did this guy do? Finally, Lamborghini said, I got to go tell Enzo Ferrari, you know, what I think about him and his cars. So he, he finally gets a meeting with the great Ferrari and he, he tells him, listen, I think your clutches are shit. And Enzo says, well, maybe you don't know how to drive a Ferrari and you should just stick to making tractors. So, you know, for Lamborghini leaves that meeting um, and, and basically resolves from that day that he's going to make a car. And he's going to make a better car uh, to, to prove to Ferrari that, that he's a better engineer. He, he was an engineer by, by trade. And within two years, he had. Um, he went on a whirlwind tour of, of, the, of the world. He went to Japan. He went to Detroit. 
uh, he looked at the great automobile manufacturers and he imitated the, the crap out of them. And it's funny. He, he says in his, uh, in his book, he goes, I have no shame. He goes, I learned from the best. I imitated the best. Um, I didn't Im- Im- innovate much at all. I just took the best, the best parts from all of these cars, the manufacturing from Detroit, like the, 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 the beauty the beautiful design from the, I just put them all together. And within two years, he made a Lamborghini model that in many respects was superior to the Ferrari in, I think, 1966. Um, and he, and you know, he, they've been making cars ever since. So, you know, th- that the whole company was born in essence out of mimetic desire. The thought of making a car didn't, hadn't even dawned on, on Lamborghini, uh, until he had the right, the right model and the right rival for it. Um, he didn't just wake up one day and decide to go into the car business, right? It, ero- it arose through this, this mimetic uh, rivalry that he had. And then the ending of the story is um, he realized after, after a decade or so of fierce competition with Ferrari, uh, there was debate whether Lamborghini should enter into racing. Um, and at the time, they, 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 weren't, they didn't race. They just made beautiful touring cars that had trunks in them, so d- different than a Ferrari, which was primarily a racing car. Um, I'm getting into Formula One, by the way, these days. So I, because I wrote that story, it's it's solid. It's giving me one more thing to bet on. Um, anyways, uh, he he eventually realized that the rivalry would not end well if he continued that way. He wanted to spend more time with his family. He knew that if he entered the racing business, um, he would just be in a war with Ferrari until the end of his life. So he said, "We're not going to enter the racing business." Um, he handed over control of the company to other people. He retired to a beautiful winery, uh, which is still in Italy to this day. You can go buy Lamborghini wine uh, and visit uh, Ferruccio Lamborghini's uh, estate where there's a beautiful bed and breakfast. Uh, you can get a tour of a, a barn where he's got all his classic cars. And he, he lived a very, very happy and, and fulfilling you know, end of his life. Um, and it, you know, it, was an, it was an example of him recognizing um, listen, my rivalry produced this beautiful company and car, but if I if I don't stop, um, it will basically lead to my my death. And and he was a really big into bullfighting, and he sort of likened himself to the bull in a bullfight. And he said, "I'm I'm like a bull, and I I know what happens to the bull um, if if it if it doesn't realize that there's always one more thing." There's always one more thing that I could do. So I'm going to resist the temptation to kind of take this to the end. Uh, and I'm going to kind of opt out of the game while, while, while I'm ahead, basically. And that's what he did. And the badge on a Lambo is a bull, right? It's a bull. That's where it comes from. It comes from his lifelong fascination with, uh, with, with bullfighting. And there's probably a little Hemingway involved in that story, I'm sure. That's so sick, man. So I'm fascinated with people's ability to step into their own programming. So, so far, we've laid out a fairly bleak picture of human nature. We're just kind of these NPC, very easily uh, imprintable creatures. What about stepping into our own programming? Like, is it even desirable for us to get rid of our mimetic desires? Surely there has to be some wisdom in crowds, right? The evolution of memes is, and, and um, ideas would suggest that the ones that stick about are at least partly useful. Yeah, I, I think we. Um, I don't think it's possible to transcend uh, mimetic desire or to get rid of it completely. Um, you know, we'll we'll be rid of mimetic desire when we're dead. Um, you know, as as, as while while we're living, we're, we'll always have it, and it can be a tremendously powerful thing, right? It can spur us on to to imitate great models. Um, so I think we have a lot of agency. We have a great deal of agency. 
Um, but we, you know, freedom is something that we can win or lose. Um, you know, it's what happens with, with, you know, vices and addictions. You know, we, we literally lose freedom or we can develop freedom. So I think we can develop um, freedom to, to be more intentional about uh, our lives and the kinds of models that we choose, the kinds of desires that we pursue. But we can't do that if we're not even aware that this is going on. Like if we can't step into our own programming, we have to know what the program is. And part of why I wrote this book is just to let people say, here's, here's part of the programming. You know, part of a fundamental way that, that humans are wired is, is to be mimetic. We're constantly looking for models of desire. And just being aware of that to, allows us to step back, gain some self-possession, take stock um, of your life, um, of the decisions that you're making, and then step into it in a, in a more intentional way. But I find that very, very few people even acknowledge that this is a, a hidden force uh, in the world, you know, a hidden force that is to psychology what 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 gravity is to physics. Um, you got to know that it exists, or you can't develop the right muscles to combat it. It's it'd be like going through life, not knowing that that gravity exists, you know, and you never work out, and you wonder why you have like your back hurts. So mimetic desire is is, is similar. Um, we can step into it. We can, I, I think, stepping back. Uh, taking stock and then stepping back in is kind of the the approach that I recommend in the book. Well, thankfully, the audience that listens to this show are terrifyingly reasonable and unbelievably sensible. They're happy to to swallow whatever sort of uncomfortable truths they need to. So let's say that someone's listening and they want to become this intentional agent, right? They want to become a, a sovereign individual. What are some of the tactics that they can use to notice when they've been mimetically hijacked? Yeah, I think... You know, as you become aware of it, you can actually name some of your models, positive and negative. I think anytime you're able to name something, uh, just kind of like emotions, you, you gain some control over them. So, you know, when I can when I can name um, the people that I'm emulating and the people that I look to as 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 rivals, I gain some control o- over them. So, I mean, it's an exercise I would do. I'd actually like take stock, take a piece of paper, um, and take stock of what your world of models looks like in different domains. Um, who's your model for investing? Who's your model for fitness? Uh, who's your model for like what you know your relationships want to look like? Your family. What are some life? good good identifiers of this? Someone says, "I want to find out who my model for fashion is or for fitness or whatever." What are some of the things that the questions that they can ask themselves to to help identify that? Mm-hmm. You can. Um, I mean, when it comes to negative models, you can always ask yourself like, "Who who makes you uncomfortable?" Um, when when you see them during cer- doing certain things or having certain successes, um, that might be the kind of negative model or rival. I think the most powerful way to do this, though, is to actually look at your past and the and the formation of of your goals and your desires. So I had a, a good friend of mine say, I don't know if you've seen this movie called A Few Good Men. It came out in the late '80s. Jack Nicholson. He he watched this movie 20 years later, and when he watched it, he realized that for the last 20 years of his life, he had been basically saying things that came from the movie and like modeling certain mannerisms and certain ways of dealing with people based out of some of the characters from that movie. And it wasn't until he saw it 20 years later, he was like, damn, that movie was literally like my model for certain kinds of like oh, goals. Shit. So that, that had set. been his genesis that had trickled through other people and then come back to him. And then come back to him. Yeah. Fuck. So, so doing almost like a like a history of desire in our lives, starting with our parents and and family and friends, and 
that's that's an important exercise to do. And I, I guarantee you, if you take the time to do that, you will begin to identify some models that you probably forgot that you had. Um, that's one, that's one really, real, really easy way to, to get started, but it's not a, it's not an easy exercise because it takes time. Um, you might start with just with college and then, and then ask yourself, like, you know, you might realize like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm in this career that I'm in today because of some models that I had while I was in college. And I, you know, at the time I never kind of critically tested them. I didn't kick the tires. I just like took them for granted. And, and now here I am and you know, I'm not really that happy. Uh, and maybe it's because you know I've never really taken the time to understand how they influence me. So uh, that's that's one that's an easy tactic. Naming the current ones is is, is another one. Um, you know I, I recommend in the book the importance of uh, of of a retreat every year if you, if you have the time to do it. And the reason that's so important is because we're, it's hard it's hard to see something that you're in that that you're literally in, especially something that's inside of you. So you have to extract, you, you know, without, without some form of like pulling back or extracting ourselves, you know, we don't have the perspective that we need. So, you know, this is like a Bill Gates think week, but, but for desires. Um, I try to take a few days every year. Um, I, I mean, it's the most important thing that I do every year. Um, you know, I, I, I recommend that to, to gain the perspective, just to sit, to sit in silence, like things will bubble up. Um, I talk about that a lot in the book, actually, because it's, you know, it's, it's the genesis of this whole project for me. Um, if I hadn't had the luxury of taking that time, I, I never would have realized some of these things. That's, I, I find at the end of the year, I make more growth around my end of year review and my new year planning process than at any other time. And it's so dumb. So today, I've actually done my half year uh, check in. I was like, right, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to dedicate half an afternoon to it and just go through everything. And he gets so much more clarity because you actually think, look at all of the things that when I was less encumbered by culture and habits and routines and fears and desires and all this sort of stuff, look at the things that as close to my truth I was able to get on a piece of paper. And then yeah, look at what the fuck I'm doing with my time now and look at how far, how the huge delta chasm that's between these two and I go, right, okay, yeah, 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 right, okay, let's brush away all of this stuff. Let's get rid of all of that shit. Let's get back to the things that really matter, the highest points of contribution. No doubt. You know, I, I like it. There's a quote by James Clear that I like a lot that I, I kind of transferred to the book. And it's, you know, we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. And part of why it's so important to do this is to see the systems that we're part of that we might not even know that we're part of. Like, what is this? What is the system of desire that I'm like swimming in right now? Um, you know, what riptide might I be in? Um, it, it, we, we never sort of see that while we're in the moment. It's only in those moments of, of, of stepping back and gaining perspective because we all have systems, right? There's probably one for podcasters. There's, I'm sure there's definitely one for authors. I'll be the first to tell you that having just written a book, there's a system of desire. There's certain things that I'm supposed to want. There's certain lists I'm supposed to be on certain like thing. And, you know, I need to create a distance from that and say, well, is the goal to be, uh, a New York Times bestseller, or is, is there a better goal than that? Maybe like a long-term 12, 15, 20-year goal. Um, and, and it's important to gain that perspective, or else we just take the, we, we basically, other people give our goals to us if we don't do that. Yeah, I, I'm hearing a lot of Goodhart's law throughout this. When the measure becomes the outcome, you end up having some very sort of strange externalities. So for instance, you could sell a book which did a million copies, but let's say that it made the world a totally awful place or let's say that it was really xenophobic or something and 
absolutely annihilated your career and people were hate buying it so they could burn it in the street and you were causing riots to occur. Like you have achieved the goal, but because you've looked at the measure as the actual outcome that you're after, and I suppose that in the modern era as well, again, collapse of grand narratives, lack of reach back to tradition and stuff like that, people don't really know what it is that they're supposed to want. We look to other people and just over time you get this weird sort of Fisherian runaway increasing caricaturism of bigger lips, bigger boobs, bigger arms, bigger bank balance, faster car, bigger house, so on and so forth. I imagine there must be, is there an inversion of a model then that you, someone that you look to, that you're kind of obsessed with, but is a role model that you're using as an example of what not to be. Everyone's got the, the sort of car crash Instagram accounts that they hate watch all of the stories of online. Yeah. Yeah. That we, that we hate watch. Um, you mean me personally or well, just, just in, the, in general in terms of the, uh, mimetic desire infrastructure, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's, I think it's critical to have, um, those kinds of models that are typically transcendent to the systems that we're in. Um, you know, it, it could be somebody for, you know, from, from history or just some, some ideal, because if we don't have any kind of, tr- uh, model that transcends our environment, we're kind of constantly subject to the, whatever the tyranny of our age happens to be. Like we're always a product. We're always a child of our age. Um, and I think that is with the collapse of, uh, with the collapse of, of sort of meaning and grand narratives, uh, we risk, um, we risk that, right? We, we don't have kind of any, anything like outside of, you know, it's like you're, you're drowning in, in, in quicksand and you don't have anything to like latch onto everything that you're grasping for other people that are also drowning in, in the damn quicksand. So I think it's, it's critical to have some transcendent models. It doesn't have to be a person. Um, it could be, it could be an idea, um, right? It could be, it could be some, something that is kind of what, you know, classic or perennial philosophy would just call like these perennial truths of what it means to be human and what leads to it, you know, to the good life, right? As Aristotle would say that, uh, that can sort of save us from the, the destructive effects of mimesis to, to be able to, to, to have something to hold on to in that way. Luke Burgess, ladies and gentlemen, wanting the power of mimetic desire in everyday life will be linked in the show notes below. If people want to check out what else you do, where should they go? Uh, LukeBurgess.com. Uh, a lot didn't make it into the book, so I, I try to write a Substack uh, called Anti-Mimetic every week, uh, where I, I try to connect all these ideas to current events. Sick man. Thanks for coming on. Cool. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget, you might be listening, but not subscribed, and you are not a waste of space. You are a fantastic human, which means that you need to make sure you've pressed that subscribe button. It's the only way that you can ensure you're not going to miss an episode every Monday, Thursday, and Saturday when I'm not in Ibiza. So navigate to your little podcast app. Press the the plus in the top right-hand corner or the love heart or the big subscribe button, whatever it is. Go and do it, and I'll be happy. I thank you.